Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer. I'm just uh, here, hoping you're all doing well, staying safe, keeping your mouths covered, keeping, uh, keeping the, trying to keep the curve down instead of, like, straight in the other axis. You know, it's a good thing to uh, keep you inside and keep you occupied. Bunnyslippers.com. Oh my goodness, why would you want to go outside? There's so many different animals' novelty slippers that you can wear. I'm not making light of everything that's going on outside, but damn it, look at those slippers. They are nice. And, um, bunnyslippers.com. They're damn nice. No, uh, check out their Highland Cow slippers. They're shaggy bowls that look really cool. And I, I have to say, they're really nice and, really nice and warm. And they've got so many other things. They've got, uh, like, different things that you can put on your feet of things that you like. Bunnyslippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com, too. Great company. Uh, works in conjunction with Bunnyslippers.com to give you uh, some of the best 80s outfits that you can find on the internet. Just, just like Chris Knight from Real Genius, Val Kilmer's character. I've got the Revenge of the Nerd shirts that I love. Am I wearing one right now? No, I'm actually wearing an official uh, PGTTCM shirt that you can find at the store show, or uh, um, uh, show shop, at the show shop, the show store. Uh, you can, it's a direct link to our t-shirts that you can uh, buy to help support the show. Also, t-shirts for Articulate Warbling, new one coming up soon, and a uh, new episode coming up soon, new t-shirt coming up soon new t-shirts for uh new episodes for dave's underground goat shenanigans and new t-shirts already up i'm always coming up with new t-shirts idea and thank you so much for supporting the show by buying my t-shirts and founditemclothing.com's t-shirts and bunnyslippers.com and you know what we're probably going to have some new sponsors in august as the show grows and Gross. Thank you all new listeners. New listeners, we uh, kicked past the 2,000 mark in uh, followers officially on Podbean. We're still somewhere in the 30K daily listeners. Thank you so much for sharing and telling people about us. If you want to follow us, we are People's Cthulhu Podcast, Black Clock Audio Tales, everywhere else. Kind of poking around on Twitter here and there. Mostly on Instagram, doing Facebook. Always do Facebook, because it's on my phone. And yeah, so help the show, check out the other shows I produce, and here's some Algernon Black. Transition. John Mudbury was on his way home from the shops, his arms full of Christmas presents. It was after six o'clock, and the streets were very crowded. He was an ordinary man, lived in an ordinary suburban flat, with an ordinary wife and four ordinary children. He did not think them ordinary, but everybody else did. He had ordinary presents for each one, a cheap blotter for his wife, a cheap air gun for the eldest boy, and so forth. He was over fifty, bald, in an office, decent in mind and habits, of uncertain opinions, uncertain politics, and uncertain religion. Yet he considered himself a decided, positive gentleman, quite unaware that the morning newspaper determined his opinions for the day. He just lived from day to day. 
Physically he was fit enough, except for a weak heart, which never troubled him, and his summer holiday was bad golf, while the children bathed and his wife read Garvis on the sands. Like the majority of men, he dreamed idly of the past, muddled away the present, and guessed vaguely, after imaginative reading on occasions, at the future. "'I'd like to survive all right,' he said, "'provided it's better than this,' surveying his wife and children, and thinking of his daily toil. "'Otherwise,' and he shrugged his shoulders as a brave man should. He went to church regularly, but nothing in church convinced him that he did survive, just as nothing in church enticed him into hoping that he would. On the other hand, nothing in life persuaded him that he didn't, wouldn't, couldn't. I'm an evolutionist, he loved to say to thoughtful cronies over a glass, having never heard that Darwinism had been questioned. And so he came home gaily, happily, with his bunch of Christmas presents for the wife and little ones, stroking himself upon their keen enjoyment and excitement. The night before he had taken the wife to see magic at a select London theatre where the intellectuals went, and had been extraordinarily stirred. He had gone questioningly, yet expecting something out of the common. It's not musical, he warned her, nor farce, nor comedy, so to speak, and in answer to her questions as to what the critics had said, he had wriggled, sighed, and put his gaudy necktie straight four times in quick succession, for no man in the street with any claim to self-respect could be expected to understand what the critics had said, even if he understood the play. And John had answered truthfully, "'Oh, they just said things, but the theatre's always full, and that's the only test.' And just now, as he crossed the crowded circus to catch his bus, it chanced that his mind, having glimpsed an advertisement, was full of this particular play, or rather of the effect it had produced upon him at the time. For it had thrilled him, inexplicably, with its marvellous speculative hint, its big audacity, its alert and spiritual beauty, thought plunged to find something plunged after this bizarre suggestion of a bigger universe after this quasi-jocular suggestion that man is not the only then dashed full tilt against a sentence that memory thrust beneath his nose science does not exhaust the universe and at the same time dashed full tilt against destruction of another kind as well how it happened he never exactly knew he saw a monster glaring at him with eyes of blazing fire. It was horrible. It rushed upon him. He dodged. Another monster met him round the corner. Both came at him simultaneously. He dodged again, a leap that might have cleared a hurdle easily, but was too late. Between the pair of them, his heart literally in his gullet, he was mercilessly caught. Bones crunched, there was a soft sensation, icy cold and hot as fire. Horns and voices roared, battering rams he saw, and a carapace of iron. Then dazzling light, always face the traffic, he remembered with a frantic yell, and by some extraordinary luck escaped miraculously onto the opposite pavement. There was no doubt about it. By the skin of his teeth he had dodged a rather ugly death. First, he felt for his presence, all were safe, 
and then instead of congratulating himself and taking breath he hurried homewards on foot which proved that his mind had lost control a bit thinking only how disappointed the wife and children would have been if if anything had happened another thing he realized oddly enough was that he no longer really loved his wife but only had great affection for her what made him think of that heaven only knows but he did think of it he was an honest man without pretense this came as a discovery somehow he turned a moment and saw the crowd gathered about the entangled taxicabs policemen's helmets gleaming in the lights of the shop windows then hurried on again his thoughts full of the joy his presence would give of the scampering children and his wife bless her silly heart eyeing the mysterious parcels and though he never could explain how he presently stood at the door of the jail-like building that contained his flat having walked the whole three miles his thoughts had been so busy and absorbed that he had scarcely noticed the length of weary trudge besides he reflected thinking of the narrow escape i've had a nasty shock it was a damned near thing now i come to think of it he did feel a bit shaky and bewildered yet at the same time he felt extraordinarily jolly and light-hearted he counted his christmas parcels hugged himself in anticipatory joy and let himself in swiftly with his latch-key i'm late he realized but when she sees the brown paper parcels she'll forget to say a word god bless the old faithful soul and he softly used the key a second time and entered his flat on tiptoe in his mind was the master impulse of that afternoon the pleasure these christmas presents would give his wife and children he heard a noise he hung up hat and coat in the pokey vestibule they never called it hall and moved softly towards the parlour door holding the packages behind him only of them he thought not of himself of his family that is not of the packages pushing the door cunningly ajar he peeped in slyly to his amazement the room was full of people he withdrew quickly wondering what it meant a party and without his knowing about it extraordinary keen disappointment came over him but as he stepped back the vestibule he saw was full of people too he was uncommonly surprised yet somehow not surprised at all people were congratulating him there was a perfect mob of them moreover he knew them all vaguely remembered them at least and they knew him isn't it a game laughed someone patting him on the back they haven't the least idea and the speaker it was old john palmer the bookkeeper at the office emphasized the they not the least idea he answered with a smile saying something he didn't understand yet knew was right his face apparently showed the utter bewilderment he felt the shock of the collision had been greater than he realized evidently his mind was wandering possibly only the odd thing was he had never felt so clear-headed in his life ten thousand things grew simple suddenly but how thickly these people pressed upon him and how familiarly my parcels he said joyously pushing his way across the throng these are christmas presents i've brought for them he nodded toward the room i've saved for weeks stopped cigars and billiards and several other good things to buy them good man said palmer with a happy laugh it's the heart that counts 
Mudbury looked at him. Palmer had said an amazing truth, only people would hardly understand and believe him, would they? Eh? Huh? he asked, feeling stuffed and stupid, muddled somewhere between two meanings, one of which was gorgeous and the other stupid beyond belief. "'If you please, Mr. Mudbury, step inside. They are expecting you,' said a kindly, pompous voice, and, turning sharply, he met the gentle, foolish eyes of Sir James Epiphany, a director of the bank where he worked. The effect of the voice was instantaneous from long habit. "'They are,' he smiled from his heart, and advanced as from the custom of many years. Oh, how happy and gay he felt! His affection for his wife was real. Romance indeed had gone, but he needed her, and she needed him. And the children, Millie, Bill, and Jean, he deeply loved them. Life was worth living indeed. In the room was a crowd, but an astounding silence. John Mudbury looked round him. He advanced towards his wife, who sat in the corner armchair with Millie on her knee. A lot of people talked and moved about. Momentarily the crowd increased. He stood in front of them, in front of Millie and his wife, and he spoke, holding out his packages. "'It's Christmas Eve,' he whispered shyly, "'and I've brought you something, something for everybody. Look!' He held the packages before their eyes. "'Of course, of course,' said a voice behind him, "'but you may hold them out like that for a century. "'They'll never see them.' "'Of course they won't, but I love to do the old sweet thing,' replied John Mudbury, then wondered with a gasp of stark amazement why he said it. "'I think,' whispered Millie, staring round her. "'Well, what do you think?' her mother asked sharply. "'You're always thinking something queer.' I think, the child continued dreamily, that Daddy's already here. She paused, then added with a child's impossible conviction, I'm sure he is, I feel him. There was an extraordinary laugh. Sir James Epiphany laughed. The others, the whole crowd of them, also turned their heads and smiled. But the mother, thrusting the child away from her, rose up suddenly with a violent start. Her face had turned to chalk. She stretched her arms out into the air before her. She gasped and shivered. There was an awful anguish in her eyes. Look, repeated John, these are the presents that I brought. But his voice apparently was soundless, and with a spasm of icy pain he remembered that Palmer and Sir James, some years ago, had died. It's magic, he cried. But I love you, Jenny, I love you, and— and I have always been true to you, as true as steel. We need each other. Oh, can't you see? We go on together, you and I, forever and ever. Think, interrupted an exquisitely tender voice. Don't shout. They can't hear you now. And turning, John Mudbury met the eyes of Everard Minturn, their president of the year before. Minturn had gone down with the Titanic. He dropped his parcels then. His heart gave an enormous leap of joy. He saw her face, the face of his wife, look through him. But the child gazed straight into his eyes. She saw him. The next thing he knew was that he heard something tinkling, far, far away. It sounded miles below him, inside him. He was sounding himself, all utterly bewildering, like a bell. It was a bell. Millie stooped down and picked the parcels up. 
Her face shone with happiness and laughter. But a man came in soon after, a man with a ridiculous solemn face, a pencil and a notebook. He wore a dark blue helmet. Behind him came a string of other men. They carried something, something he could not see exactly what it was, but when he pressed forward through the laughing throng to gaze upon it, he dimly made out two eyes, a nose, a chin, a deep red smear, and a pair of folded hands upon an overcoat. A woman's form fell down upon them then, and he heard soft sounds of children weeping strangely, and other sounds, sounds as of familiar voices, laughing, laughing gaily. They'll join us presently, it goes like a flash. And turning with great happiness in his heart, he saw that Sir James had said it, holding Palmer by the arm, as with some natural yet unexpected love of sympathetic friendship. Come on, said Palmer, smiling like a man who accepts a gift in universal fellowship. Let's help em. They'll never understand. Still, we can always try. The entire throng moved up with laughter and amusement. It was a moment of hearty, genuine life at last. Delight and joy and peace were everywhere. Then John Mudbury realized the truth, that he was dead. End of story 14 THE TRADITION the noises outside the little flat at first were very disconcerting after living in the country. They made sleep difficult. At the cottage in Sussex, where the family had lived, night brought deep, comfortable silence, unless the wind was high, when the pine trees round the duck pond made a sound like surf, or if the gale was from the southwest, the orchard roared a bit unpleasantly. But in London it was very different sleep was easier in the daytime than at night for after nightfall the rumble of the traffic became spasmodic instead of continuous the motor horn startled like warnings of alarm after comparative silence the furious rushing of a taxicab touched the nerves from dinner till eleven o'clock the streets subsided gradually then came the army from theatres parties and late dinners hurrying home to bed the motor-horns during this hour were lively and incessant, like bugles of a regiment moving into battle. The parents rarely retired until this attack was over. If quick about it, sleep was possible then, before the flying of the night-birds, an uncertain squadron, screamed half the street awake again. But these finally disposed of, a delightful hush settled down upon the neighborhood, profounder far than any piece of the countryside. The deep rumble of the produce wagons coming into the big London markets from the farms, generally about 3 a.m., held no disturbing quality. But sometimes in the stillness of very early morning, when streets were empty and pavements all deserted, there was a sound of another kind that was startling and unwelcome, for it was ominous. It came with a clattering violence that made nerves quiver and forced the heart to pause and listen. A strange resonance was in it, a volume of sound, moreover, that was hardly justified by its cause, for it was hoofs. A horse swept hurrying up the deserted street, and was close upon the building in a moment. 
it was audible suddenly no gradual approach from a distance but as though it turned a corner from soft ground that muffled the hoofs on to the echoing hard paving that emphasized the dreadful clatter nor did it die away again when once the house was reached it ceased as abruptly as it came the hoofs did not go away it was the mother who heard them first and drew her husband's attention to their disagreeable quality it is the mail vans dear he answered they go at four a m to catch the early trains into the country she looked up sharply as though something in his tone surprised her but there's no sound of wheels she said and then as he did not reply she added gravely you have heard it too john i can tell i have he said i have heard it twice and they looked at one another searchingly each trying to read the other's mind she did not question him he did not propose writing to complain in a newspaper both understood something that neither of them understood i heard it first she then said softly the night before jack got the fever and as i listened i heard him crying but when i went in to see he was asleep the noise stopped just outside the building there was a shadow in her eyes as she said this and a hush crept in between her words i did not hear it go she said this almost beneath her breath he looked a moment at the ground then coming towards her he took her in his arms and kissed her and she clung very tightly to him sometimes he said in a quiet voice a mounted policeman passes down the street i think it is a horse she answered but whether it was a question or mere corroboration he did not ask for at that moment the doctor arrived and the question of little jack's health became the paramount matter of immediate interest the great man's verdict was uncommonly disquieting all that night they sat up in the sick-room it was strangely still as though by one accord the traffic avoided the house where a little boy hung between life and death the motor-horns even had a muffled sound and heavy drays and wagons used the wide streets there were fewer taxicabs about or else they flew by noiselessly yet no straw was down the expense prohibited that and towards morning very early the mother decided to watch alone she had been a trained nurse before her marriage accustomed when she was younger to long vigils you go down dear and get a little sleep she urged in a whisper he's quiet now at five o'clock i'll come for you to take my place you'll fetch me at once he whispered if then hesitated as though breath failed him a moment he stood there staring from her face to the bed if you hear anything he finished she nodded and he went downstairs to his study not to his bedroom he left the door ajar he sat in darkness listening mother he knew was listening too beside the bed his heart was very full for he did not believe the boy could live till morning the picture of the room was all the time before his eyes the shaded lamp the table with the medicines the little wasted figure beneath the blankets and mother close beside it listening he sat alert ready to fly upstairs at the smallest cry but no sound broke the stillness the entire neighborhood was silent all london slept he heard the clock strike three in the dining-room at the end of the corridor it was still enough for that 
There was not even the heavy rumble of a single produce wagon, though usually they passed about this time on their way to Smithfield and Covent Garden markets. He waited, far too anxious to close his eyes. At four o'clock he would go up and relieve her vigil. Four, he knew, was the time when life sinks to its lowest ebb. Then, in the middle of his reflections, thought stopped dead, and it seemed his heart stopped too. Far away, but coming nearer with extraordinary rapidity, a sharp, clear sound broke out of the surrounding stillness, a horse's hoofs. At first it was so distant that it might have been almost on the high roads of the country, but the amazing speed with which it came closer, and the sudden increase of the beating sound, was such that by the time he turned his head it seemed to have entered the street outside. It was within a hundred yards of the building. The next second it was before the very door, and something in him blanched. He knew a moment's complete paralysis. The abrupt cessation of the heavy clatter was strangest of all. It came like lightning, it struck, it paused, it did not go away again. Yet the sound of it was still beating in his ears as he dashed upstairs three steps at a time. It seemed in the house as well, on the stairs behind him, in the little passageway, inside the very bedroom. It was an appalling sound. Yet he entered a room that was quiet, orderly, and calm. It was silent. Beside the bed his wife sat, holding Jack's hand and stroking it. She was soothing him. Her face was very peaceful. No sound but her gentle whisper was audible. He controlled himself by a tremendous effort, but his face betrayed his consternation and distress. "'Hush!' she said beneath her breath. "'He's sleeping much more calmly now. "'The crisis, bless God, is over, I do believe. "'I dared not leave him.' He saw in a moment that she was right, and an untenable relief passed over him. He sat down beside her, very cold, yet perspiring with heat. "'You heard?' he asked after a pause. "'Nothing,' she replied quickly, "'except his pitiful wild words when the delirium was on him. "'It's past. It's lasted but a moment, or I'd have called you.' He stared closely into her tired eyes. "'And his words?' he asked in a whisper. Whereupon she told him quietly that the little chap had sat up with wide-opened eyes and talked excitedly about a great, great horse he heard, but that was not coming for him. He laughed and said he would not go with it because he was not ready yet. Some scrap of talk he had overheard from us, she added, when we discussed the traffic once. But you heard nothing, he repeated, almost impatiently. No, she had heard nothing. After all, then, he had dozed a moment in his chair. Four weeks later, Jack, entirely convalescent, was playing a restricted game of hide-and-seek with his sister in the flat. It was really a forbidden joy, owing to noise and risk of breakages, but he had unusual privileges after his grave illness. It was dusk, the lamps in the street were being lit. Quietly, remember, your mother's resting in her room were the father's orders. She had just returned from a week by the sea, recuperating from the strain of nursing for so many nights. The traffic rolled and boomed along the streets below. "'Jack, do come on and hide. It's your turn. I hid last.' 
but the boy was standing spellbound by the window staring hard at something on the pavement sybil called and tugged in vain tears threatened jack would not budge he declared he saw something oh you're always seeing something i wish you'd go and hide it's only because you can't think of a good place really look he cried in a voice of wonder and as he said it his father rose quickly from his chair before the fire look the child repeated with delight and excitement it's a great big horse and it's perfectly white all over his sister joined him at the window where where oh i can't see it oh do show me their father was standing close behind them now i heard it he was whispering but so low the children did not notice him his face was the color of chalk straight in front of our door stupid can't you see it oh i do wish it had come for me it's such a beauty and he clapped his hands with pleasure and excitement quick quick it's going away again but while the children stood half squabbling by the window their father leaned over a sofa in the adjoining room above a figure whose heart in sleep had quietly stopped its beating the great white horse had come but this time he had not only heard its wonderful arrival he had also heard it go it seemed he heard the awful hoofs beat down the sky far far away and very swiftly dying into silence finally up among the stars end of story 15 end of day and night stories by algernon blackwood